with me your copy your copy of God's Word to Exodus. As we continue with the ministry of the Word, we come to the preaching of God's Word. We're in Exodus chapter 4. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. This is not the Word of man. This is the Word of the one true and living God. As we've been reminded, He does not lie. What we find here is truth. Take up the Word in verse 10. We focus on verses 10 through 17. Then Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, O my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. Let's fire the word of God. Let us pray. Father, as you have appointed the preaching of the word, that you would be the one who receives all the glory. We come to you in dependence. We acknowledge the, the weakness of man, our own weakness, both in the hearing, but also in the speaking of your word. We pray that you would attend that which you ordained to be the means of communicating your truth. Lord, may we hear Christ speak to us through the scripture. And may he be magnified in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Titled this sermon along the lines of what we see in the text, God's mercy in dealing with his people. You find that in many places we see here, but I might have titled the sermon along a different line. Not me, Lord. Did you not hear that come through? Whereas one titled it, Here am I. Send someone else. Moses is very reluctant. Think about that. How often have we known the will of the Lord for us? and failed to do it. We're quick to excuse ourselves. We can relate to Moses in this passage, can't we? He's a man of like nature as we are. These are the same frailties. Think about how often we have argued with God. How many times have we, in a sense, told God he just didn't see things right? That if you really understood, there was this extenuating circumstance or this within us. God didn't really see the way things the way they are down here. How often do we outright just disobey God? Because of our little faith. Because sin that is just yet clinging to us as a mud, as mud to a garment. Do you remember what we saw in the disciples of Jesus that day after Christ's resurrection? We were there so frequently, so recently in the book of uh, John. Uh, there, the announcement of the resurrections occurred. They're hearing about it. They've seen the empty tomb, but they don't 
fully grasp it, and I use the term that there was an immature faith. They had a faith, but it was immature. It wasn't fully developed. It, what's taken place, the resurrection of a man crucified, it's never happened before. Though it was told to them, they didn't understand that these things are unfolding, and we see just how much that immature faith affected them, even though they had been shown much, they had been given much, and think about it, they had been involved in so very much. And they were sent out by Jesus, and the Lord performed miracles through them. And yet, there was still a weakness and an immaturity in them. But unlike the disciples, Moses, as we find him here, at this point in his life, he had not seen much. He had not done much. He was not involved in great things. He's been herding sheep in a wilderness place. He would have had little faith. We're not really told when uh, Moses had faith, when he believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness. He's having his first real encounter with God even at this point, though God has been with him. God's hand has been upon him. God has protected him and even brought him to this point. We could say Moses had a way to grow. Grow, and yes, Moses had a way to go. Literally. But in this passage, we will see ourselves, but more importantly, we will see God. We will see the very heart of God our Father, His mercy and his long-suffering with men, with man, with us. God knows our frame. However, we must never presume upon the mercy of God. The Scripture tells us he is merciful that he should be feared. We must not presume upon God's mercy. Nor should we ever dare think that we can outsmart God or outmaneuver God. Most of us have to acknowledge we've tried. They didn't turn out well. He is God, and we will always be his creatures. We will always be completely dependent upon him for the very breath of life, for the beat of the heart. We're made of the dust of the earth. He made us out of the dust of the earth. In the end, we're just frail jars of clay. That's some of what we see in Moses, a frailty, but there's something of unbelief, unbelief of an immature faith, a developing faith. But, of course, as the story progresses, we will see Moses grow. We will be walking along through the text, seeing that take place. We use four main headings. Moses objects. He says, I don't speak well enough. God replies, I made your mouth. Moses objects again. Send someone else. God says, I'll send Aaron with you. You can say, you're still going as we'll see. And we're going to conclude with Jesus Christ, the Lord's ready, willing, and obedient servant. So we begin with Moses objects. Moses had three excuses. He's already given three excuses in our text thus far that we've already covered since he encountered the Lord at the burning bush. Remember, he's keeping sheep, and as the scripture said, in the backside of the wilderness, he's a long way from home, Jethro's household. He's a long way from there. And he has this encounter with God and the bush that is burning, though it is not burned up. In verse 311, Moses said that he was inadequate. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? It's a different posture. He thought he was something when he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, and that didn't turn out so well. In verse 13 of the third chapter, Moses says he's ignorant. He says, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? 
what shall I say to them? That was an objection. Moses also claims he lacks credibility. You see that in the first verse of this chapter. But suppose that they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So Moses has raised three objections, and here we see him. He raises two more. You could say he raises one more, and then he just says, I won't go. Send somebody else. Now remember, Moses has received the best possible education in Egypt. He's been adopted, brought into the household of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But he says, he doesn't speak well. I'm slow of speech. And that may be legitimate. He may very well have been slow of speech. Moses didn't think that he was able of addressing the great men of Egypt. He grew up around them. He knew their eloquence. He knew their education. Uh, maybe they were great rhetoricians that they could give the answer and be very persuasive. And, and Moses knew that within himself he did not have the capacity. That he wasn't capable to do that. I don't, I don't doubt that the, the text would have us to think this is a very honest self-evaluation. And Moses says, I'm slow of speech. God doesn't rebuke him and say, you got that wrong. God says, I made your mouth. And he will tell him, I'll be with you. We should understand from this, there have been many clear-headed, great thinkers, men full of sound judgment, and yet they're not good speakers. There are such men that are best able to communicate their wisdom and knowledge when they write, rather than when they speak. You think about some of the great innovators, uh, even of our days, that come up with some of the inventions that we enjoy, and yet they didn't have the capacity to run a big corporation. They just were very innovative. And we have different skill sets. And we need to understand our niche. And I think that Moses is self-aware, but he's not aware of God. He doesn't fully understand who God is. He's having this encounter with God. And we need to remember that there's, this would have been a trembling moment. God says, take off your shoes for the place you stand is how it wrong. Moses is finding out about God, things that he didn't know. He's heard of God, and now God is speaking to him. The Apostle Paul was just such a man, uh, even as we're hearing in 1 Corinthians. I want to refer to 2 Corinthians. Paul says of himself in 2 Corinthians 11.6, he says, Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. He said, I'm untrained in speech, but I'm not untrained in knowledge. He had a tremendous education. He's a perfect example of one who had tremendous education, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish instructors of his day, and even in, in the history of Judaism. And yet Paul recognized, I'm untrained in speech. He, he refers to this often, particularly in his letters to the Corinthians. And the Corinthians had this evaluation of Paul himself. Paul writes what they said about him. Um, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, and his bodily presence is weak, and his speech contemptible. That was the Corinthians' evaluation of Paul. So this is a reality. Paul's not a great speaker. He's not a great orator. But he thus went forth, even as we're reminded from 1 Corinthians moments ago, that he preached Christ and him crucified. That the power wasn't in his eloquence, his words. The power was in the message. The power was in the spirit of God as he was faithful with the word of God. There's a lesson here, an application even so early. It's an observation we should make as we live our lives, we should not judge a person by how well they speak. Do we not see that? I've traveled internationally, I'm sure some of you have, and, 
and I've seen people come from other places here, and intelligent people, but they speak with an accident, accent. And I've seen American arrogance, you know, slowing down and acting like they're just so dumb they got to make it simple so they can follow. How condescending. We draw conclusions about people because of how they speak. We should not. We dare not do that. We heard last week again from 1 Corinthians, the passage right before where we at this morning, that God often uses the weak things in this world to confound the strong. God has selected Moses, a, a man slow of speech. God has called him out to send him to the great men, the powerful men, the eloquent men of Egypt. He is sending him to them, a weak vessel. And indeed, we will see as we move forward the contempt that they have for Moses. And yet God will use him. We're going to hear a little bit later on just how it is that God uses him. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I'm, I'm delighted, and, and this was intentional, that we were in John and that we're back to Exodus. You could do it the other way around. But let us see with the men that Jesus selected, the men that he called out. They were uneducated men. Many of them were fishermen. One was a tax collector. These were simple, ordinary men. And yet, after the resurrection, God imbued them with power from on high, filled them with the Holy Spirit, and usually here it say they, they turn the world upside down. Perhaps we should think about it. They turn the world right side up, because is not our world upside down in so many ways? It's the truth of God that comes to set things right. God does not work the way that men do. It was good for Moses, though, as we see this. It was good for Moses as well as it is for us that God is merciful. He's long-suffering. God answers Moses at every point, for every objection. God answers him. God knew what Moses was going to say before he even uttered it. Look at Psalm 139. David even celebrates that point. The bottom line, as you look at these objections, Moses was, this is what I want to say, as an immature faith, he's only looking at himself. God says, I want you to go to Egypt and bring my people out. What a, an impossible task. And Moses is looking at his inventory of skills and abilities, and, and he's just like, I'm not able. I, I have nothing but deficits. I'm not competent to do this. Moses is only thinking about his own resources. But God is going to bring him along. He does so over time. And Moses is going to understand the great recesses, resources of our great God. Some of you are older in the Lord, and you can think back when you were young and immature in the faith that when you look back and say, man, I had a lot of harebrained ideas about who God was and what he could do. And I had a lot of wild expectations of myself, and now I can see how the Lord's turned that around, and I see myself better in I see God for who he is. Moses is in the midst of that. Well, then God answers this objection from Moses. God replies, this is, I made your mouth. God corrects Moses' faulty understanding and promised that he would go with him. I already told him in the previous chapter that he was going to go with him. Therefore, the implication is that God's going to be the one who supplies the resources. It's not dependent on Moses and what he has. Remember, just... At the end of the, the previous chapter, God has told Moses who he is. I am who I am. I am. I am the self-existent one. I depend on no other. 
I am the creator over all. This is who is sending him. And Moses is coming to understand that the one who is self-existence and who made all things, all things, will accomplish his purposes in all the earth. Look at verse 11, 411. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Now, Scripture reveals, I think Moses would have been mindful of the oral tradition of the creation account, something that Moses is going to pen when he starts writing the Scriptures. Again, remember, Moses does not have any written word. Moses is the first human author to be inspired to write the Word of God. We don't know when that begins, and we're not told how much Moses knows, but there's things that have been passed down from Abraham, not from Abraham, but from uh, Adam to Seth, and down through the generations, from Noah to his sons, and down through the branches. So you see a common uh, theme amongst uh, worship and religion in the Middle East, because it all began at a common source. And so Moses would know that God was the creator, but God focuses in. Moses has talked about his mouth. My mouth, it's slow as speech. God says, who has made man's mouth? Well, the obvious answer for Moses was that you have. Or who has made man, who makes the mute? That is, those who cannot even speak. Moses is objecting because he's slow as speech. God said, who has made the mute, the ones who cannot speak, or the deaf, or the seen, or the blind? And if Moses has any wonder, God says, have not I who? The covenant faithful Lord. It's all caps L-O-R-D. God says, I did that. I am the creator. Moses, I know your mouth. I know your limitations. I made you. God says something here that's very helpful. This little verse that's tucked in teaches us much. I just want to pause for a moment and reflect on this as we think about apologetics, that is, giving a defense, not apologizing, as we might think the word means, children. The, the word apologetics is to make a defense, a defense of the faith. What do we hear from people today? If you start engaging, it's like, so you say this God that is the one true living God, he's all-powerful, he's loving and kind, then why does, and then this speak of some tragedy? Why are there deformed children? Why are there wars? Why are there hurricanes? Why is there suffering? Why is there disease? What's your answer? It's simple. God decreed it. God is God. But see, we also need to go back to the garden because it was not so in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and when he looked upon the creation he made, he looked at it all, and it was all very good. That was not man's evaluation. That was God's holy evaluation. It was all very good. Then sin. And because of Adam's sin, God cursed. He cursed Adam. He cursed the ground. These things are part of God's judgment. Saying you hear of a, a hurricane, or even right now, apparently in Bangladesh, over there, there's a typhoon, as they call hurricanes, and there'll be much loss of life, much suffering in that place. God is at work. That's that's not an accident. It's not like God you know, took a break from being God. He never does. He doesn't sleep or slumber, as the Scripture reveals to us. All these things come to pass because God has accomplished his purposes. And so when we see these, what we call tragedies, or as they used to be called, acts of God, before the blasphemous Mother Nature in their language, don't you dare, Christian, ever use that language. And even correct it in others. Find your voice. 
There's no other nature. It's Father God. God has decreed these things. God does all his holy will. And there's this constant reminder of sin. When somebody asks you about that, this is an open door to the gospel. I'll tell you why there's these tragedies. I'll tell you why there's deformities. I'll tell you why there's disease. Because our first father, Adam, sinned. And therefore we sin in him and fell with him into transgression. And there's this sin all around us. And there's a curse for sin. That's why there are deaf and blind. Disease. Why there's genetic mutations that we see. And yet even God, even that God, brings about blessings. We teach people about sin, and then we tell them about the Savior. But here it is. It's, God's not apologizing. But just remember that God does not need you to be his defense attorney. Tell them the truth. Open your Bible and say, look right here. God says, I, I did this to accomplish my purposes in the world. And so that's how God answers Moses. Just remember again, Gospels John, chapter 8. The man born blind, or the man, man born blind, blind from birth, and Jesus heals him. And when they encountered him, what, what did the apostles ask Jesus? This, this question was before them. Why is he blind? And you hear the, 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 the paradigm, the little box they're trapped in. Was it his parents' sin, or was it his sin? Because surely he's blind because of one of their sin. Well, it is because of sin. It's because of Adam's sin. And what did Jesus tell them? He says, none of the above. He said, it's that God may be glorified. And then he healed him. And then that man was emboldened. He even speaks to the religious leaders of the day. I love it. He speaks more boldly than just about anybody. He said, what is it that you, you want to believe in it too? You keep asking me what happened. And he says, I don't know his name, but this man healed me. He says, how is it that you, that you don't believe in him? Because never since the beginning of creation has there been such a thing where a man born blind sees. The glory of God is on display. Not just for that man, but for all who knew him, and even for us to today. God explains unto Moses that whatever limitations Moses has in his speech or anywhere else, it's because God made him that way for his own glory. I'm speaking a little bit about you know, that it's Moses' weakness, that God will then use that weakness to display his power before the powerful nation of Egypt. So then Moses, or God addresses one of Moses' misunderstandings. He goes on to have Moses understand, you're not the one to come up with the message in the first place. Look at verse 12. Now therefore go. He's, he's answered this question. I made your mouth. Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth. That is slow speech. And God says, I will teach you what you shall say. You don't need to be a great rhetorician. You don't need to be filled with all this logic. You don't need to be quick on your feet. I will tell you what to say. A marvelous truth. And what you see here, Moses is going to be the first writing prophet. We have five books of the Bible. As Moses not only was told by God what to say as he went into Egypt, God revealed five marvelous books of inspired, inerrant, accurate scripture of how things began. And all this history that took place 
God certainly did that. I will tell you what to say in that moment, but God also told him what to write, led him what to write. As Peter puts it, he was a holy man of old that God moved along by the Spirit to write the Holy Scriptures. You know what God doesn't tell Moses? I'll heal your mouth. It kind of might have been what we expected. I mean, you see that you know, the charismatics, they encounter diseases and afflictions and so forth, and you know, there's this chicanery of that it's going to be get fixed, and it's going to get healed, it's going to be transformed, something's going to change. God didn't do that. He just says, I'll give you the words to speak when you need to speak. And that's the same promise Jesus made to the disciples. Before he ascended the body, he says, after I go, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit, the Comforter, and he will lead you to all truth. So that when you stand before kings, I will put the words into your mouth, what you shall say to them. And then, of course, we see that with Peter and John, after they heal the lame man, they're before, before the Sanhedrin, and, and they give a powerful defense, the Holy Spirit's given them the words, and they marvel. Are these not uneducated men? Where did they get such learning? And it was apparent to them, they concluded, they've been with Jesus. And Jesus was with them by his spirit in that moment. Moses may never have spoken gracefully. Think about that. God doesn't say here, but there's nowhere ever in the five books that Moses wrote, the whole history that covers the next 40 plus years, we're never told that Moses' speech impediment was healed. And yet, no one spoke in the halls of power in Egypt more powerfully than Moses. He may have been slow of speech, but when Moses spoke, there were words of power. Some of you are old enough to remember the E.F. Hutton commercials. You know, when E.F. Hutton speaks, and you know, the, the commercials always, everybody just went silent. They, you wonder what was going to be said, and then putting themselves forth as being great financial counselors. I think after a few visits to uh, Pharaoh's court, that those who were in Pharaoh's courts, when Moses walked in and started to speak, they put their hand over their mouth. They wanted to hear what this man had to say. He spoke with power, pointing ahead to what we're going to conclude with Christ. Isn't that when Jesus came? What is it the people recognized about our Lord Jesus Christ? He didn't speak as their scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke as one with power and with authority. For he was the Word, bringing the Word God. My friends, we may not be a prophets or apostles. We, we, we won't be. But, uh, but God is no less with us. About the Holy Spirit that attended Moses and the prophets and the apostles is with us. God is with us. That was the promise of Christ to his church. I will never leave you or forsake you. God is with us. If we've been born again, born of the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit to aid us as his disciples. We will never speak as inspired as these men did, but God will equip us with the spiritual gifts he gives us to use them for his own glory, that we can answer those who encounter us. Well, Moses was done with excuses. God's answered all the ones he's raised. So now Moses objects. This time Moses objects. He says, send someone else. Look at verse 13. God's made these great promises. I'm with you. I'm the God who made your mouth. I will give you the words to say. So Moses might say, okay, 
Oh, my Lord. Notice he, there's this entreaty. He's, he's very, um, there's, there's humility in his words. Oh, Lord, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. What's he saying? Not me. He, he makes it, it's a good appeal. There's, there's a recognition of he's dealing with someone far superior to him, though he does not fully understand that. That is something that will progress in his life. Though he's having this marvelous account, this supernatural encounter. Uh, but he, he recognizes and he says, my Lord, please. He's entreating the Lord. My Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Do you get what lies behind that? God, you're gone. I'm, I'm coming to understand you are. Um, you scanned the earth, and you found me here in the wilderness, and you said, well, I'm going to send you. And he said, well, God, maybe you should just go look again. Whomsoever. He's suggesting you've got it wrong, God. There's some whosoever else out there. Go and send that one. This response to Moses should take our breath away. And I think it would if it wasn't something we did ourselves. We're like nature. We're shifted to something else. You know, God's not sending us to bring his children of Israel out of Egypt. But how often in the face of temptation to sin do we act as though, well, I just I can't do it. Or I've got to give in. I've I got to give way. Denying the power of God that is in us by His Holy Spirit, that He has equipped us to overcome in the face of temptation, to endure through every trial. God has not failed us. His arm is not short to problems with us. It's like, well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I really want to do this thing. Help someone else, right? Be honest with ourselves. Oh, ye of little faith. When you think about the case, you're home for the holidays, you've got unconverted family members all around. You prayed for them. You prayed for them for this week. You even prayed, Lord, help me be bold. I, I, I care for them, and we do. Lord, they're perishing in sin and iniquity, and I care for them, Lord, be bold in my mouth. But then we're sitting there. And the conversation starts to go someplace, and we steer away from it so the Lord finds something else. Maybe some other time. Been there? We've been there. We're of the same nature as Moses. The Holy Spirit nudges our heart, and we start reasoning as to why we can't, why this is not a good time. And then that night we'll crawl in our bed and we'll feel bad about it. Maybe we ask the Lord to forgive us, pray to Him, bold us for tomorrow, and we do the same thing again. The, the holiday visit's over, and we come home, and we beat ourselves up, and we continue to pray. And we do it all over again. Maybe next time, solicit others to pray with you and for you. That God would overcome your resistant heart. Just a heart like Moses' heart. A resistance in, in doing what God would have us to do. Because remember, God's arm is not short to save. Is our faith weak? Yes. O ye of little faith. Remember. God used an ass to crack Balaam in the way. We should be encouraged. We're not asses. We're his creatures. We're made in his image. We've been redeemed by his blood. He's made us new creatures. He's filled us with the Holy Spirit. Surely we're a far more suitable instrument than a donkey. 
Think about that. Say, okay, Lord, fill me with your spirit and equip me to speak to my beloved family members. And again, remember, God took simple fishermen and they set them, he set them loose into the Roman Empire and turned it right side up. They preached the gospel. They preached Christ and crucified. You were hearing this from Paul in 1 Corinthians. He was just but one of the apostles. One who was also a poor speech. But God used these men. He's able to use us. We don't need to live in the first century. God is the same God. It's the same gospel. It's the same spirit. We're, we're the same sort of people. It's our little faith. You know, if God would get a hold of this and we'd yield to God, we would see greater things happening. Church, we need to repent. We need to repent and confess our little faith. And then be bold in Christ and go forth in his power. So God hears this objection of Moses and God replies, I'll send Aaron with you. He's still going. Look at uh, verse 14 again. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. God's merciful. It doesn't go on to say, and he struck Moses dead, or he struck him dumb, or like Jacob who was limp thereafter. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? He says, Remember Aaron? Remember your brother? You've been out here 40 years. Remember him? This is Moses' older brother. I know that he can speak well. Remember, God made every mouth. God knows his mouth too. He can speak well. And look, this Moses doesn't know that. He's coming. It's, it's that wonderful Hebrew, Hanam. And behold, take note. You don't know this? God's telling him something. And behold, he's coming. He's also coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Who knows what's been going on in Aaron's heart? Forty years Moses has been away. How does he even find him? God's hands upon it. He's in the wilderness. But God's bringing the two together. God's at work in this. God says, he's coming. I've called him out. I've sent him to you. And God answers Moses' objection. He says, Aaron will go with you. I'm going to send Aaron with you. When it says that God was angry with Moses, we need to understand that God does not have passions like men. God's doesn't have emotions where they flare up one moment and then calm down another. But it's written here that we would understand the displeasure of God. God is not happy with Moses. Moses' objections, they're manifestations of little faith. And yet God is patient and merciful. He continues to work with him. With this expression, God was angry. With Moses reminds us that God takes no pleasure in sin. So often we think so, but he does not. But also we need to understand, when we sin, God's purposes are not upended. Moses' unwillingness to go does not then send God off. The bush didn't just suddenly extinguish and God depart. No, God came and he called Moses. Moses was his man, and he says, you will go, and I'll send Aaron with you. We may think we can wrestle with God, but we cannot and win. Remember, Jacob wrestled through the night, and then as dawn was breaking, the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, touched him in the hip. And Jacob lived the rest of his days. 
How amazing God's mercy to us. I've referred to Paul. You go back to him. Think about him when he was called Saul. What was he doing? He was traveling throughout the land with letters from the Sanhedrin. He was breathing out threats in the church. He was arresting Christians where he found them and bringing them in chains. He was even putting them to death. He was in opposition to the Lord God. Then on his way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus encounters him. And he says to him, why do you persecute me? He struck Saul, but he didn't strike Saul dead. Isn't that a powerful lesson to us? you got enemies out there. You look at the landscape. We think of geopolitical figures. They're, they're evil men. You say, God, why don't you just strike them dead? Why don't you just pinch their head off? What we're saying is if I was God, I would do that. It's an expression of discontent. A little leeway, a little headway to next week's commandment, not to covet. God is merciful. What if God had just struck Paul, Saul? God had a purpose for this man, a gifted man, a well-educated man, but he needed a new heart. And then, as a vessel in God's hands, he reworked Saul and made him a vessel for honor. He was so different that they gave him a new name. He became known as Paul. And we have so much of the New Testament was written by this man who was once in opposition to Christ and to the church. God is merciful. And remember what happened when Paul, I mean Saul, and he's, he's blind. He's made blind. Who made him blind? God made him blind. Again, our text. He goes to Damascus. He waits a few days. Ananias comes, prays for him. And it's something like scales fall off his eyes. And he sees. God's mercy. God's condescension to Saul, but to Moses. God says, Aaron will go with you. He speaks well. But then God made Aaron to be Moses' mouth. But God still puts his words in Moses. Look at the text. Now, this is verse 15. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself should be as a mount for you, and you shall be to him as God. God's mercy and God's grace. Moses, so resistant, so rebellious. God prevails in his heart. He says, you are still going, Moses. And if you are the one that I have chosen that I will speak to, and I will speak to you, and then you will tell Aaron what to say. And I will use Aaron's eloquence, his ability to speak well, to communicate with the children of Israel, with the nation of Egypt. But Moses, you're going. Remember that next time you think you can wrestle with God and prevail. God will have his will accomplished. God, given the commotion, the, the commission, the outset of our text to Moses. Now he's prevailed in Moses. The one whose name is the drawn out one will go as Jehovah's servant to draw out his people from Egypt and bring them to the land of promise. That remained Moses' responsibility. Aaron was but to speak the words of Moses.
So the two will go together. They'll work together. Remember what Moses, uh, Solomon says? The wisest mere man that ever lived. What was his wisdom? Two are better than one. Remember how Jesus sent out his apostles? He sent out the twelve two by two. Later he sends out seventy two by two. Moses is going. Then verse 17. Verse 17 is weighty. Look at what it happens here. So you're going to go. I'm going to speak to you. You'll speak to Aaron. He'll be your mouthpiece. And you shall take this rod in your hand. So Moses, the shepherd, still holding his shepherd's staff. You shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. What signs has Moses seen? We had the one where he put his hand in his bosom, came out leprous, and put it in and came out clear. But the first one was with this rod. He's seen one sign. He threw it down and became a serpent, took by the tail brought up and became a rod again. But God says to him, with which you shall do the signs. This is forward-looking. God is revealing to Moses, there are more signs than the rod turning into a serpent. But it's with this rod that God will accomplish his purposes. By the command of God, take up the rod. God indicated by this, notice this, the success of Moses' mission was not so much dependent upon speaking, but rather upon action. You know the plagues. Revisit them with me. The rod in Moses' hand was Moses' tool. And Moses was in God's hand as God's tool even as God calls upon us today to be available in his hand as his tools. Moses had a shepherd's staff. Remember, shepherds were offensive to the Egyptians. This shepherd with a shepherd's staff is going to go into the courts of Pharaoh. An offense. Yay! Right? God is intruding upon the decorum of Egypt. That's only the beginning. With the rod, what did Moses do? Moses, with his rod of authority, a symbol of his authority given to him by God, he will strike the waters of Egypt and they will become blood. Then later on, he will stretch out that rod over the streams and the plague of frogs will come up over the whole land. Then he will stretch out that rod and there will be lice that will cover the land. Then he'll stretch out that rod and there will be a plague of hail that will come upon the land. And then he will stretch out the rod and there will be a plague of locusts to consume the land. And then later, after the Lord's brought them out and the nation of Israel comes to the Red Sea and the armies of Egypt are behind them with a rod, Moses will stretch it out over the waters and they will part and Israel will go through on dry land. And you know what happens? The Egyptian armies follow them and he stems the rod, the waters come in and the Egyptians get immersed and they die. That's not Presbyterian humor. That's theology. Waters that immerse are destructive. Read your Bible. We'll talk about that more later. And so it is with this rod. Moses' shepherd staff, a humble shepherd staff, is like the scepter of God in the hands of Moses. Wow. You know something exciting? Children, imagine this. This is amazing. A simple shepherd staff becomes a scepter of power, the power of God in the hands of a mere man to accomplish the mighty miracles of God. Powerful miracles, the likes of which have not been seen. And some, interesting, Moses 
Moses wasn't ready. He was keeping sheep. Moses wasn't willing. He wasn't eloquent. And yet God sent him. But some 1,500 years later, God will send another messenger, another servant. And that brings us to our conclusion. Jesus Christ, the Lord's ready, willing, and obedient servant. God's only begotten Son was sent by the Father into a world to save sinners. Unworthy, undeserving, condemned, guilty sinners. God the Son came to earth in human flesh. Emmanuel, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a, a lowly virgin maid. Jesus knew that his birth would be into humble circumstances. He knew that a stable awaited him not a lush bed. He knew that he would be carried to Egypt to escape a wicked king who was determined to destroy him. He knew that coming into the world to save sinners and little helpless child, great perils would be upon him. He came. He knew that he was coming to the world full of sinners, that then he would be, uh, when he was anointed as Messiah by John of the house of Levi, that the Holy Spirit would then carry him into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. No food. And then Satan himself would come to tempt him. And yet he came. He knew that he would call not the best and the wisest and the brightest men of Israel, but simple men, even fishermen, lowly men, to become his disciples. Sons of Abraham, his brothers, would then turn on him, seize him, and deliver him up to the Roman government, demanding that he be crucified. He knew all this. He knew that Pilate, fickled man that he was, wouldn't understand that he was innocent. He even says it, didn't he? We saw that in John. Jesus knew that. And yet he would then condemn him to death. He would deliver him up to be crucified on a Roman cross. Moses is a Christ type. He points to Christ. We'll see that develop in him more fully as he displays the offices of a prophet and a priest and a king, all pointing to the one who is the prophet, the priest, and the king. A flawed man pointing to one who is more than man. God's own Son, who came from glory, willing, ready to serve His Father. Oh, my brothers and sisters, let us thank God for His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let us bless our Savior, Jesus Christ, that He willingly undertook to die in our place, to receive the wrath that we deserved for our sins. Moses faced none of this. Christ faced all of it. It wasn't something he found out. It was all foreordained. He was even part of the foreordaining. Jesus then came to deliver out of the kingdom of darkness, pay the penalty for our sin, endure our wrath, to set us free from the power of sin, deliver us out of the kingdom of darkness, and to grant us eternal life and bring us home to the Father, not to a promised land as we would look at the land now, but to bring us home to a place not made with human hands, even as Jesus 
said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, for in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you so. Jesus was willing unto death. And so when God wants to send us on a mission, they'll say, Lord, here am I. Send me. I don't feel adequate. I don't feel sufficient. But if you would send me and go with me, I'll go. I'll go. Maybe young men that have been wondering about the ministry. Something I grappled with. Lord, am I sufficient for such a task? I feel a sense of your calling me to gospel ministry, Lord. But what am I? But a man. A flawed and perfect man. A sinful man. Lord, can you use me? It's a right thing to grapple with that. No, you should not go if you are not called. But indeed, if you sense the calling of God, have the humility, not the stubbornness of Moses. So, Lord, if you would use me, send me. Let us all be encouraged to take up the message of the gospel. If you experience Christ's converting power, do you know the power of God at work in you to save you as a sinner, to work in you to grow you up, to be a, a saint of the glory of God? Then be a witness. Tell your story. Bear witness of the great things God has done for you, so that in all these things, God would have all the glory. Amen? Our Father in heaven, we do pray and ask your blessing upon each of us, that as we learn from Moses, that we would be faithful to walk in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would walk by the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given to us, that we would not depend upon ourselves, but that we would look to the one who has saved and redeemed us. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures that teach us these things. Bless us as we go away from this place to meditate on these things and to profit from them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take up our hymnals, and we're going to sing number 411. Shine thou upon us, Lord. 411.